three things, education, empowerment, enablement. So what is AI, what is it not? How can I actually use AI for my business, for my community, and how do I actually get started? Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time joining us, welcome to the Kelly family. We exist to get knowledge and insight and wisdom straight to you. So if you have a question you're wrestling with as an organizational leader, maybe you're wanting to touch base with some of our faculty and get some of the research or trends that are happening in various industries, or you just know of a great individual who'd make an awesome guest for our show, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email to ROIPod, that's R-O-I-P-O-D at IEPUI.edu. In regards to human history, we stand on the shoulders of giants currently, and especially when I, and I'm talking more so in the tech sector. Here we have technology, access to technology, I should say, that does so much for humanity, whether that be the cell phone in your pocket, which serves as a device to communicate with any person around the world at any time in an instant, uh, or become a photo that takes a snapshot of a moment in time that that captures it and holds it forever. There's no question in 2020, we have the most advanced technology in all of human history combined. So how do we leverage that? As we continue to advance, now we're seeing talks of artificial intelligence, technology and computers that are actually learning and teaching themselves. It can be a very scary thing. It could be a very encouraging thing. It all depends on where you sit and your mentality and your knowledge and know-how. But how do we leverage that in order to grow our business? Well, on today's episode, I am honored to be joined by Neil Sahoda. He's an IBM master inventor, a United Nations artificial intelligence subject matter expert, and author of the book, Own the AI Revolution, Unlock Your Artificial Intelligence Strategy to Disrupt Your Competition. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Hey, very awesome to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me on. So let's talk about this book you have. You know, you're a big proponent of artificial intelligence, obviously. So uh, kind of give us the, you know, 30,000 foot view uh, to someone who's interested in, in this book. Well, I will, I will tell you that, you know, if, if I ask your audience, you hear the word AI, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? I think it's the Terminator, you know, something like yeah, some cyborg <laughs> from the future coming back. That's what we're often. It's the Terminator time, you know. Oh man, the machine's gonna rise up, conquer humanity, or you know, take over the world. And I'm like, that's not really what AI is. We're so far away from anything like that being happening. Right? AI, like all technology, is a tool, and I really feel like it's a chance for all of us to kind of create the future. And right now, there's a lot of kind of fear mongering out there, or it's like super technical that. Uh, people weren't really getting the help that they wanted. And I realized that, you know, answering a lot of the same questions for businesses all the time, I finally said, let me write a book. And so my book, Own the AI Revolution, is really for non-technical business leaders to understand three things, education, empowerment, enablement. So what is AI? What is it not? 
how can I actually use AI for my business, for my community, and how do I actually get started? And so I, I like that point you brought up initially. You know, the very first thing a person thinks about when they think of AI is typically that doomsday scenario. We are, uh, humanity is now slave to the robot, you know, kind, kind of mentality. Um, and I think that, you know, even though we joke about it, I do think it taps into um, a real principle or real feeling. Maybe, okay, maybe the robot's not going to fully take over the world. However, you know, if I'm if I'm someone from the manufacturing sector or like someone who's working in the manufacturing, well, maybe it could take my job away. You know, as we've seen in some uh, some instances where people fear that this robot's coming in, I'm going to lose my job as a line worker or a manufacturer. But that be, does become a real fear. So, so talk about um, you know what AI more so is right now and today, and what it's what it's not. A lot, lot to unpack there, Matt. Um, you actually, you remind me ironically of a Prudential billboards ads I saw, where they're going like, "A robot can't take your job if you're retired." <laughs> <laughs> but that's not an option for all of us. Um, it, it's it's not so much that AI is this magical bullet and it's these great thinking machines. Uh, not at all. I mean, AI is essentially a computer that can do something we teach it to do that requires some level of low cognition, right? Without any kind of human supervision. So imagine like processing an insurance claim, for example, right? Yeah, it's, it's really good at things that we can kind of commoditize, the kind of the, the low level admin, I call it the urinal cake type of tasks, right? A AI is not sitting there thinking like, I'm gonna teach myself how to drive a car, I'm gonna teach myself how to build a missile. They're all passive systems, right? None as far as we know as consciousness, but we're so far away from this concept of what we call artificial general intelligence, where they're thinking for themselves. Uh, rather, just thinking that they're like kind of like a digital assistant, right? We taught them to do something, and they only know that one thing or those two things, and they help us do that work. And I know we see, and I think for for myself in in this, when I think about it, I. I think I'm closer and have a better relationship with AI than I realize. You know, uh, for example, uh, you know, I went to the grocery store the other day and, and you, you take for granted some of the aspects of you walk through, there's lines at the other checkouts, but then, you know, there's a self-checkout line that's just flying through people, you know, and, and kind of to your point, I mean, that is a branch of AI because you're not interacting specifically with another human transacting cash, handing over, you know, um, some of those the same elements that would go into it. Um, but you're able to get a process done in, in less time, it seems. And I think for a lot of people, and I, and I, and I think that, um, even before all that, there was that fear that, Oh, the moment these self checkouts come in, that's going to be the end of grocery store jobs for, for people, you know, jobs are going to be gone. And I think that's a big concern. So talk about and address, I guess, the fear that comes with AI and then job loss. You know, what What are some of those things that happen and how should um, we view um, what AI can do with, with jobs and job creation? That's a great, great question, Matt. You know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Some jobs will go away and it's the same throughout human history, right? Whether it's AI or some other innovation, right? We, what we keep doing is actually evolving the nature of work. And 
and I, and I leave me, I get it. We get comfortable, especially later on in our career. We kind of things that most people don't like change, but things actually never stop changing. You know, when tractors first came out, people thought it would be the end of farmers. It wasn't like, well, they didn't end farmers. We just needed less of them because farm, one farmer could be far more productive. But it also freed up time to do other things. It's the same thing with AI. It's not that, okay, an AI can do insurance claims. We don't need insurance uh, you know, processors anymore. It's that the, the AI will get good at the very simple kind of mundane ones. And then you think of those more complex cases, they have people that actually can spend more time doing that kind of work, the more complex, high value work. It's the same thing with doctors, right? One of their biggest complaints is they don't have enough time to actually spend with patients. They just try and see X patients a day, if they file all this paperwork. Imagine that someone that gets offloaded to an AI system so they can actually spend more time with each patient. And that's really the ultimate goal. Does that mean we're gonna all have to upskill and adapt to the new work environment? Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, but that's life. It's a constant change. And uh, talk uh, talk more specifically. You know, to address the those individuals who I do like your your example you gave about the farmer when when there is a new technology introduced into the work environments or um, into industries, it does create disruption. But I mean, disruption happens everywhere. Whether a new business with a new model, a new idea, a new process comes in, I mean, it's going to disrupt. You know, X, Y, and Z corporation in in because it's going to impede into their uh, market share, their market cut, you know, and, I, and AI, it sounds like is kind of a similar thing. Talk about how, uh, you know, for, for individuals who are fearful of losing in because of AI, talk about what's there to gain. What's the mindset to, or what's to gain given the interactions with AI and, and the human workforce? I, I, I liken it to, there's all, there's all kinds of tedious work we don't like to do. That's usually ripe for AI. Imagine that comes off your plate. What can you do with that free time? And I'm a big pro- proponent of those guys who wrote the book Slack and that we've lost our ability to think innovatively because we've, we've boiled our time down into the millisecond now that there's no free time to think about things, right? So how do you figure out how to do your job better? How do you innovate, come up with that new product, new service? Do you want to engage customers, right? Like right now during COVID times, hearing a lot from marketing and salespeople, it's like, it's really hard to connect with customers, especially on the B2B front, right? Sometimes you have that little FaceTime to kind of build a relationship. It's kind of hard to do very uh, like a Zoom call, you know? And what they've actually done is they started turning to AI tools. So they're not using like AI capabilities around psychographics and neurolinguistics to actually understand people at a deeper level that they, wouldn't, they couldn't do unless they met face-to-face. And it's now, that's actually helping them understand, oh, this person likes to focus on, you know, the value of a product, or this person's very cost sensitive, or this person's like a auditory learner, or this person has a low level of commitment and need to work with somebody else. That they're finding out that these tools are not just good for a virtual environment, they're just good for any environment. And they're like, I have to spend, spend less time kind of pro, you know, talking and processing information. Now I'm getting a lot of this information, it's much easier for me to focus on the person and actually build a meaningful relationship. And so we're seeing like these little nuggets pop up in all the different industries with AI to do that. And people are finding it's like, wow, all these headaches I always had 
some of the headaches are going away because the machine can do it for me. So think, think about it. I think that we all probably have something where it's like, man, if I could just get this one thing off our, my plate, it would free up a good chunk of time for me to do something that's a little more meaningful, more value add. Sure. And I think we have that mentality, you know, within leadership, because you're always thinking of how can you improve, like if I'm, if I'm like an entrepreneur, let's say, you know, uh, eventually I'm going to want to hire people on onto the team in order to take over some tasks that free me up then to develop, you know, wherever I need to be as a CEO, as a leader. And it sounds like there's a similar parallel with AI. It is. I mean, think, think about it, right? We always talk about now we're in the age of the knowledge worker, right? And we don't get enough time to tap into our knowledge and be disruptive or innovative. But at the same time, if our time is really the most valuable piece now, how much is it worth to actually free up some of that time that we don't have to do some of that, that paperwork? Like a part-time professor, one of the challenges I always have is having to grade. You know, It's very time-consuming. It's very arduous. But if I could have an AI TA that could actually grade this stuff for me, that frees up a lot more time for me to actually spend with the students, work on the lesson plan, think of some cool exercises to do in class, try and improve the learning experience, the student experience. You know, focus on where I can actually create more value. So I want to get into the three points that you brought up, the, the educate, the empower, and the enable. You know, when you talk about educating, what do you hope to educate or what do you hope to bring into the conversation with this book um, and how people should educate themselves regarding AI? Well, I, I find there's just a lot of misconceptions. It's not just the Terminator fear factor, but people understand what AI is and what it is not and what this really means. And, it, you know, we, we, I know we talked a little bit about it, but it's like people are like, okay, AI uh, could do this, it can do that. Uh, it can't, right? It only learns what we teach. Like you hear about the AI that can detect lung cancer from an x-ray, right? Very cool, does it with 90% accuracy. You know, they say better than human doctors, like 50%. But that AI that was built can only do that one thing, right? It took lots of data to teach, to teach the AI. It takes time, you have to have a strategy, subject matter experts. It's a lot of work to do one thing, but it's a very powerful thing, right? And so it's like when people come into AI, they always think like, cool, stuff's out there. I'll have a solution in like two weeks does not work that way, right? The, the more variability, the more complex the system, the longer it'll take to actually build something. And I'm not trying to dissuade people from obviously building with AI, but I, I find that the expectations on how things actually materialize, like how you build a solution, are, are really askew, you know? And that, that's a big challenge. The second big challenge, you have a lot of companies out there that they're not really doing AI, but claiming they are. It's a nice buzzword for them. And so there's a lot of disappointment out in the business world saying like, ah, oh, well, you know, AI is not really that powerful. It's not really that cool, you know? And it's like, well, you're not really tapping into what AI is. <laughs> um, and that that's leads to the third big challenge was, which is the capabilities. People really have to understand what the capabilities of AI are in order to tap into them. You know, you alluded earlier when you started the show, Matt, that we're entering the fourth industrial revolution. Right? We're talking about the digitization of pretty much everything. We're used to machines being for automation, right? Doing something faster or cheaper or less errors. AI brings a whole different set of capabilities, right? There's value in automation, but you're only tapping into 20, 30% of the potential. If you can tap into innovation, because machines can do things, there's you know 
that we adult computer could do before, we actually have new ways of doing things. And that's what people are struggling with is getting to that mindset to realize how can I actually unlock more of this value? And I definitely want to tap into that more, you know, toward the end of the show, I really would love to get into supercomputing and kind of what your thoughts are, especially with some of the, you know, Google breakthroughs in, <laughs> in quantum computing. So uh, definitely hold on to that thought because I'd love to get your opinion. Uh, but I want to go next into, you know, the empowerment, you know, so we, we talk about how, um, you know, AI empowers, but at the same time, how your book works to empower an organizational leader to kind of embrace some, some facets, if not all facets of, of AI computing. Well, I, I go into detail in that the most successful AI ventures, whether it's new product, new business unit, new company, were actually started by non-technical people. And that's one of the biggest challenges I've seen working with organizations around the world is they're like, well, I got a lot of smart technologists on my team. They'll tell me what we should be doing, right? And it's, it's a common thing, you know, but in this fourth industrial revolution, unfortunately, most of those technologists can't tell you what to do, right? They may be really smart guys, but how many IT guys, you know, Matt, that know the problems of a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant, right? I mean, unless they specialized in it while getting an IT degree, I don't, I don't know that there's very many. Yeah, and that's the big problem, right? Is that you got the business leaders saying, okay, well, the technologists tell me, tell me what we need to be doing. The technologists don't actually understand, right? When it comes to AI, yeah, you focus on a problem and all that stuff, but it's kind of this mesh, right? And that you have to have both the domain expertise and the understanding the capabilities to actually figure out an innovative opportunity. A great example was there were three lawyers, right? Very successful. Bruce worked for big firms, started a little boutique firm, you know, because they were set for life. And, you know, one of them was from my alma mater. I wanted to reach out. So I wound up meeting with them for lunch, talking about a few things and started talking about AI. And they're like, we feel like we should be doing something with AI. What is it? You know, and I'm like, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I play one at the university. <laughs> But uh, like, I'm not a lawyer. I never went to law school, you know, but let's talk about it, right? And so we started talking about some of the challenges lawyers have, that kind of stuff. And they, they realized, you know, you talk about the urinal cake type of work, that when someone files a complaint against you, you know, you have to read the complaint, you have to file some paperwork, you have to do the interrogatories, you have to generate deposition questions, you have to do some research, you know, start forming a case strategy. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of grunt work up front. Like, is that an opportunity for AI? So here's three lawyers that don't know anything about AI, don't really know technology, starting to build a solution. And so they figured out what they want to do. They figured out what the opportunity is. This is what my book talks about, right? How to go through these steps. And then they partnered with some technologists to actually build it out. And it actually wound up working so successful, they actually sold off their boutique law firm and started a new company called Legal Nation. They actually have like Walmart and Nationwide Insurance, some very big companies as clients now. And their AI, right, would have taken like an associate lawyer, like three years of experience, maybe 10, 12 hours to do. Their AI does in two minutes, you know? And if you'll indulge me for a second, you know, because a, a great example of the innovation, the power and why, you know, it's got to be the business leaders kind of taking the reins here is that Walmart had a, a case about chickens, right? Guy bought a whole chicken, bit into a gizzard, chipped his tooth. Ironically, the guy was a dentist, right? 
sued Walmart for damages. Normally, Walmart would probably settle, settle out of court, right? Saving just some of the fees and stuff like that. I, I don't know. They'd probably pay like maybe $60,000, dollars or just make up the number. But now that they have the legal mission AI, right? He ran it through the AI because what does two minutes cost you? <laughs> and the AI came back with all its work. But one of the things the AI came back and said was, well, as part of the case strategy, it's actually a material fact that when chickens eat, they eat stones and it gets stored in the gizzard. So by buying a whole chicken and buying the gizzard, the customer should have been aware of the risk and therefore Walmart is not liable. It was that argument that won Walmart the case, right? And I even remember asking like, would have a lawyer been able to figure this out? And you know, so many managing partners told me, not unless that lawyer grew up as a chicken farmer. There was no way someone was going to figure that piece out. Sure. Right? And that's the, that's the testament of power that could be brought. But this was all done by, again, three non-technical lawyers. And that does raise, begin to raise the question of the morality or ethical issues when regards to AI, because, you know, like we discussed in the beginning or set the foundation of, um, AI is just a, a set of, you know, code and language that some human at some point, you know, determines and sets the parameters, you know, but so that does not have a judge of morality or ethicalness unless it's quote unquote programmed, which I don't know where you begin to program ethics into, a, you know, an AI machine. But does is there a point where then AI goes too far? You know, is there a, is there some place that it just becomes, you know, and I think that's a decent example of an individual and you know using law and lawyer uh, and lawyers to try to figure out a case and and bring in all these knowledges and facets, you know. But to some point then if someone does have malice intent to program into the computer some sort of, you know, thinking, you know, what, what, where does ethics and morality come into the AI conversation? It's, it's interwoven in, Matt, and it's, it's an interesting subject you bring up because this is just a tool, right? AI is just a tool, and it's how we as people choose to use it. Use it for good or you can use it for bad. And if we don't instill the mindset of using it for good, I'm not saying a lot of people are going to do this, but there's like 2% out there that you know are going to misuse the tool, right? Uh, and we're, we're facing a big challenge on that. I, I don't know if you ever, if you've heard of Tabot from Microsoft. Came out probably about three years ago now. And it was Microsoft's first foray into AI and they're playing a bit of catch up against other companies. And they basically created this Twitter bot, right? Powered by AI. They trained it up to the level of a 13 year old girl. It was going to be this grand experiment saying like, we'll introduce Paybot to the world, we'll interact and learn, grow that kind of stuff. Well, it started its first tweet was, hello world, I can't wait to meet you. And 24 hours later, Microsoft is shutting it down because Paybot is racist, sexist, a Nazi, right? And it's not like the AI was evil, it's what it learned, but from people trying to teach it, right? Because it's trying to learn from interactions. You had a small segment of people come in and decide they wanted to corrupt the whole thing. It turned more into a testament of our society, unfortunately, than what this means with technology. So this whole concept of what's right is a big challenge. And you know, I will tell you that in the digital age, there are no boundaries. In China, they have uh, 
police officers are outfitted with Google Glass. And so when an officer looks at you, they know your name, where you live, where you work, where you've been the last two hours, right? And the people in China, they love it because it's like, it'll help catch criminals faster. It'll help find lost children, right? Imagine taking that technology to Europe or North America, right? I can already see you shaking your head going like, oh my God. It would no. not go well. I mean, just, and it's a cultural thing because, you know, it definitely crosses a bunch of ethical boundaries because of our culture. Yeah, right. It's, it's big brotherish, invasion of privacy, and there's nothing to really stop that from coming over. So how do we figure out what's right, right? What's the right ethics? And I will tell you that two years ago, I gave a keynote address at GSR, which is the big global regulators conference. And I was the only one willing to put voice to what everyone's thinking in the back of their mind. No one ever wants to talk about is, if you really wanna do this, and not just for AI, but any kind of emerging technology, if you wanna ensure there's ethical standards in place, you're gonna to have to come up with a global baseline definition of what is right. And think about how hard that is, right? It's not just countries or even different US states that have ethical standards. Every person kind of has their own moral code. How do you bridge all that divide to come up with a baseline everyone will accept and agree to, right? It's a, I've seen people, when you start talking about this, they get angry. No one's gonna tell me what to think or what to believe in. It's a very visceral response. But I said that in front of the global regulators, right? And you could see in their faces like, why in the world is this guy saying this out loud? Shut up, you know? And afterwards, when I was done, there was no applause. You know, I remember the Secretary General of the UN running up to me and he's like, Neil, that was a very brave thing you did. It was the right thing to do. You made no friends. Just probably get the hell out of here. <laughs> but a year later at the next GSR, guess what was happening? There was small hallway conversations where people were actually talking about that, right? The, the ball got started. It's going to take time, right? But we have to figure this piece out. What is that baseline ethical standard? And I think, I mean, and that's true in almost every industry. You know, you look at, for example, construction. You know, you can't just take materials and build a building and then that just call it good. I mean, there are, and, and it bases country to country, but there are building codes. There are building standards. There's guidelines. You know, some are legally a binding. Some are, hey, if you just want to improve, like your standards are like, hey, just if you want to go above just bare minimum, some are, you know, Hey, if you want to go above, above bare minimum and really wow, you know, here's some guidelines that, you know, to follow instead. Um, and, and I think that could be true. You know, like you were saying with AI is that having a commonality of terms or foundational gridlock or, you know, foundational principles does seem to be part of the conversation. Absolutely. Because, you know, then you get into places where you have people who do have, you know, all the know-how of AI are really able to leverage it for evil instead of good. And how do you combat that? Well, that's the big challenge, right? Again, you can have a lot of smart technologists and people that want to do good, but we always focus on, I'm trying to solve this problem or taking advantage of this opportunity. So I'm expecting X and does, does it work for X? No one's ever thinking about how else people might use this or misuse this. Mm. You know, I always talk about drones as a simple example where, right, we create drones, they go around, they can help us map out land, you know, look at, you know, forest fires or wildfires, all this kind of stuff. But no one's thought like, well, what if some guy was flying a drone by an airport, right? How dangerous is that? 
Or what if they're flying over your backyard and taking pictures? Is that okay? What if they're taking pictures of your small kids? You know, mm-hmm. we didn't think through all these different scenarios. And we're so used to being reactive and having time to react, but we live in a time where change happens so fast. We have to jump ahead of these things, understand how things might wind up being used. Well, finally, as we begin to wrap up, I do, like I said, I want to come back to your thoughts with supercomputing. You know, we have quantum calculations like at an unbelievable scale at how fast, you know, processing is becoming with AI and computing technology. Uh, you know, so I'd love to get your thoughts. What, what's supercomputing going to bring to this industry? How is it going to disrupt our current status of now? And, you know, where are we going in the future? What do you see? Paint the, paint the vision of, of Neil's future, of what he sees AI di- accomplishing. Uh, imagine a completely digitized society where you have your own little AI assistant that's crushing through, you know, exabytes of data per second <laughs> to help you figure out what to buy, what to eat, where to go, what's going on, you know, right? 5G is meant for streaming, man, to help fuel tons and tons of data through. There's 31 billion IoT devices already out there, and I think 127 get added every second, right? We've created this massive data funnel, recruiting data for machine consumption. And I think ultimately we need quantum computers and all this stuff to be able to process this volume but also take us to that next leap where everybody wants that little AI buddy. Again, Neil Sahota, he's an IBM master inventor, United Nations artificial intelligence subject matter expert, and the author of the book, Own the AI Revolution, Unlock Your Artificial Intelligence Strategy to Disrupt Your Competition. Neil, just want to thank you so much for being the guest on our show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Matt. This was a fantastic This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.